Hi, welcome to this episode of Your Update. If you're a new listener, my name is Alex. And I'm Fran. We both graduated with languages degrees mid-pandemic and are now training to become broadcast journalists. Now that Brexit's become a reality and fewer people are learning languages than ever before, we decided to put our skills to good use and translate the biggest stories from Europe for you. We will be bringing you weekly updates on the hottest topics in Europe, from migration and markets to tennis and TikTok. But in today's episode, we'll be discussing the Sarkozy scandal, vaccine spats, Germany's clampdown on extremism and Spain's made-up artists. Espero que pospongan las elecciones. El gobierno está tomando decisiones muy, muy riesgosas. Oui, l'ambiance a un petit peu changé. Dans cette situation du coronavirus, du Covid-19. Donc euh, voilà. So, the first story today, Fran. What's this Sarkozy scandal? So, on Monday last week, Nicolas Sarkozy was found guilty of corruption and influence peddling and was sentenced to three years in jail. Mm. So this news has sent shockwaves across Europe. And I I think partly because his presidency is very much in living memory. He was in power from 2007 to 2012, so very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, It's worth pointing out that although what's kind of being plastered across newspapers is, oh, Mr Sarkozy's received a three-year jail sentence, Actually, two of those years are suspended and the third, Mr Sarkozy, is likely to spend at home with an electronic tag. So it's not kind of three years behind bars, as people are suggesting. Mm. Um, Also, his lawyer has said that he will appeal. So for the moment, he's actually going to remain a free man. But this, nonetheless, is a hugely significant piece of news. Mm, Definitely. Why was he sentenced in the first place? So it all centres on a phone conversation between Mr Sarkozy and his lawyer back in 2014, so after he left office. Um, This conversation was taped by the police because they were investigating claims that Mr Sarkozy had received illegal payments for his 2007 campaign. But It was clear from this conversation that Mr Sarkozy had promised a judge a job in Monaco in return for information about this investigation into illegal payments. Mm. So Mr Sarkozy was put on trial with his lawyer whose name is Thierry Herzog and the judge who was implicated in all of this whose name is Gilbert Azibar. It seems shocking that a former French president has you know behaved illegally. Has this happened before? Well it certainly isn't a common occurrence that a French head of state is found guilty by a court of law. So the last time this happened was with former president Jacques Chirac who was convicted of Um, embezzling and misusing public funds when he was mayor of Paris. That was back in 2011. Um, And the time before that was with uh, Marshal Pétain, who was found guilty of treason back in 1945 for collaborating with Nazi Germany. Mm. But what does happen a little bit more often is French politicians being found guilty of financial impropriety. So that's happened to François Fillon, who's Mr Sarkozy's former prime minister, uh, Christine Lagarde, who's Mr Sarkozy's former economy minister, and a lot of other politicians. So actually, this does raise concerns um, about corruption in French politics. Mm. Well, I read about the ruling that the judge said that Sarkozy knew that what he was doing was wrong and that his actions had given the public a very bad image of justice in France. How have other people responded to the the ruling? So obviously people very close to him were really, really critical of it. His wife, Carla Bruni, who is also a very famous actress in French cinema, described it all as senseless persecution and said that the truth will come out. 
his supporters have also been saying you know, the verdict was politically motivated. Um, they've said it's causing to question the fairness and independence of the judiciary. It's actually quite ironic given what the trial is about. Mm. Um, but the most interesting response came from the current interior minister, whose name is Gerald Darmanin. So moments after the verdict came through, he actually declared his friendly support for Mr Sarkozy. Oh, I mean, some people might think, why is all this important? You know, Sarkozy is a former president, but I guess it really does show that no matter how powerful someone is in, in France, that they're not above the law. And that's really important that this ruling has has been made. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think also it's important because it shows, you know, the separation of powers has been upheld, which is something that is key, really, to a healthily functioning democracy. Uh, another reason, I guess, why people have been saying this is really significant is that French courts actually don't tend to condemn the state. Their rulings have historically tended to be deferential to the government of the day. So this is kind of a, um, a landmark ruling in that sense. And I've heard people say that Mr Sarkozy is no stranger to legal investigations. Is that the case? Yeah, well, so Mr Sarkozy isn't going to be away from the courts for very long. He has another trial beginning on March 17th over something called the Big Malion Affair, which basically boils down to accusations that he overspent in his 2012 presidential campaign. He's also charged in a separate case for receiving funding for his 2007 campaign from the leader of Libya at the time, who's Gaddafi. And then, we're not done, there's also the investigation I mentioned earlier, which is um, the one which actually prompted the police to wiretap his phone and that was when Mr Sarkozy was being investigated for soliciting secret campaign financing from France's richest woman at the time the heiress of L'Oreal whose name is Liliane Betancourt now that investigation was dropped in 2013 but still this just shows he is constantly being embroiled in legal battles legal investigations Mm, and he's not even president so what was his presidency actually like yeah, the words bling bling are often used to describe his presidency. And <laughs> this is because Mr. Sarkozy enjoyed quite a lavish lifestyle and kind of rubbing shoulders with celebrities. He obviously married, as I said, the famous actress Carla Bruni during his time in office. Uh, a lot of people were not hugely supportive of him. So it was during his presidency that the highly controversial burqa ban was introduced. Mm-hmm. He also adopted tough immigration policies and market-driven reforms that earned him the nickname the Gaelic Thatcher. Mm. Well, I've heard him being called other names. I read that the former President Chirac described him in his memoirs as, in quotes, irritable, rash, overconfident and allowing for no doubt, least of all regarding himself. Yeah, well, that's the sort of thing people have been saying. I mean, people say that he's very overconfident, very arrogant. Um, So it's quite surprising, actually, in light of all of that, that he's actually a contender for the 2022 presidential election. Um, Yeah, he has a very high public profile in France and he's viewed as one of the most convincing potential leaders of his centre-right party which is called Les Républicains. He hasn't yet said he's going to stand but I mean people are speculating that he might. Uh, He actually tried to make a political comeback in 2017 but his party ended up choosing a different presidential candidate. So yeah it's very legitimate to say anyway that this trial will dash his hopes of ever being re-elected. So, Alex, what is this Italy, AstraZeneca, Australia drama? Well, 
Italy has blocked a shipment of a quarter of a million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine that was due to go to Australia. So why did they do that? Italy says it has a shortage of the vaccine, whilst Australia is not on the list of vulnerable countries. And it's true that the EU does, as a whole, have a shortage of the AstraZeneca vaccine right now. Instead of receiving 100 million doses by the end of March, the EU is now only expected to get 40 million. And that's because AstraZeneca has had some delays at its manufacturing plants. So Italy has decided that it won't send these 250,000 doses that were due to go to Australia. And rather it's blocked them and kept them to, to itself. So how are they allowed to do this? Because I heard something about a law being introduced towards the end of January that enabled this to happen. Is that true? Yeah. So at the end of January, there was a new law introduced by the EU, which was approved by the EU Commission, which basically means that any manufacturer of the vaccine has to request authorization for export from the country in which it's been produced. So in this case there is a factory somewhere producing vaccine, AstraZeneca vaccine in Italy and to export it to any other country they have to ask Italy's permission now because of this new EU law. But so far every time permission has been granted this is the first case that one of the EU countries has actually used the new law and decided to block it and they say that's because this shipment was just of such high volume, such a high number of vaccines that they couldn't afford to to lose them all because they need them. Obviously, the next question is, what precedent does this set? I mean, this can't have a positive impact on international relations. It's definitely splitting opinion. There is some people saying, surely this sets a very bad example. They're the first country that's decided to block export of a vaccine and keep it for themselves. And there's been calls saying that this is vaccine nationalism. But then on the other side, if you take into account the cases, two days ago, Italy had over 20,000 new cases of coronavirus, whilst Australia had only 11. And so maybe this is a pragmatic, sensible approach. Maybe Italy does need more of the vaccine than Australia. But then where where does the line, where does it stop? As soon as you start doing that um, and it's every man for themselves, where do you stop? Exactly. Either way it's really not been dealt with very well there's not there's clearly not been good communication between either of the countries here because both both sides are upset yeah something else i'd heard was that italy had originally kind of cast doubt or certainly a lot of eu governments had cast doubt on the efficacy of the astrazeneca vaccine and they you know wanted to ban it for use in over 65s so this seems kind of hypocritical in that now they're saying they want to keep all these doses to themselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were part, they were one of the other European countries who cast a lot of suspicion and doubt over whether the AstraZeneca vaccine was even effective at all. And now they're deciding that they need to keep the doses all for themselves. It's a very difficult situation. Italy representatives are saying that they shouldn't be getting the criticism that they are, that really it's AstraZeneca's problem that it's not meeting its contract but someone from Australia has pointed out well that Australia has a contract with AstraZeneca too and now that they're not getting these quarter of a million doses they're also not receiving the correct number of vaccine doses that they need. Yeah it sounds as well as if there's a lot of tension and that I guess suggests that this wasn't dealt with very diplomatically there wasn't like a phone call where they were talking this through it seems as though Italy maybe didn't deal with this particularly well. I think you're right I think that a phone call probably would have 
made this situation less uh, dramatic because Australia has admitted that this one shipment is not going to badly affect its rollout of the vaccine but it still asked the European Commission to reconsider the decision which is important perhaps for future times this happens and the EU Health Commissioner on the other hand she has said that it's UK factories that should make up for the shortfall of EU vaccine which is an interesting sort of spin on the whole debate. Very interesting. Well, I guess we'll cover the next update on this in our next episode of Your Mm, Update. Definitely. So you told us at the start there's a clampdown on extremism in Germany. What's happening there? So last Wednesday, Der Spiegel magazine published an article which revealed that the far-right political party AFD, which stands for Alternative für Deutschland, has been placed under surveillance by Germany's detective intelligence agency, the BFD. Mm-hmm. So this means the BFD will be monitoring the party's operations very closely, and that includes wiretapping individual members and hiring internal informants. However, we do have some updated information on this. So just yesterday, that's Friday 6th of March, a German court actually blocked the BFD from doing this. They said Mm. that the intelligence agency will only be able to declare the AFD a case for surveillance once the party has brought an urgent legal proceeding in the matter. And the court also pointed out that the publicity all this has created will unfairly disadvantage the AFD at the elections later this year. So why have they put them under surveillance in the first place? So it emerged from a report that the BFE is very concerned about a hard-right faction within the party, which is called the Flügel. Mm. This faction was supposedly disbanded last year after the BFE found it had a proven extremist endeavour. Um, however, evidence has kind of been emerging that its operations have resumed very recently and that it's now exercising quite a lot of influence over the party again. Okay, so what does the party actually stand for? So the party is known for its extreme right-wing ideology. It's very anti-immigration, very anti-Islam. Its support actually increased quite significantly after a large number of migrants entered the country in 2017. Um, And although it only entered the German National Parliament like four years ago, it's now the largest party in the Bundestag and it's represented in the parliaments of all of Germany's 16 states. Mm. The tone it adopts, uh, which a lot of people say is quite dangerous and violence-inducing, has been harshly condemned by the other parties and by lots of German people as well. And for its support, its support is stuck at about um, 10% in the polls. So you've said that a German court blocked the BFD from placing the party under surveillance because it would unfairly disadvantage the AFD at the elections this year. But surely the damage has already been done. Yeah, well, you're right there. Um, And from what I've read, I think there is a view that all these reports in the press have violated the principle enshrined in the Constitution that all parties should have equal opportunities. Mm. But whether this news will, in fact, put the AFD at a disadvantage in the elections this year, um, that's quite an interesting question because... It could be argued that the news won't put off people who already support the party. It's because its members have been embroiled in a lot of scandals and controversies recently. Um, but the news is likely to make it more of a challenge for the party to win over any more voters, um, and especially voters with moderate views. Yeah. 
And I and I read that it's um it's been called super election year in Germany. Yeah, so from what I've gathered, this is because six states will be going to the polls and there will be a federal election, which is like a general election, on the twenty sixth of September. But I asked my friend Theresa, who currently lives in Heidelberg in Germany, to elaborate on exactly why this is such an important year in German politics. Yeah, also dieses uh, Jahr ist ganz besonders wichtig. This year is especially important in German politics because there will be elections in some of Germany's states to elect their new parliaments. These elections will determine which political movement comes to power again. In Baden-Württemberg, where I live, we have a green CDU administration. It's of course exciting to see whether the Green Party will still remain in power. Will climate policy take the lead or will things change? Und jetzt ist natürlich spannend, bleiben die Grünen weiterhin ähm, ja, an der Macht? <lacht> Geht die Klimapolitik irgendwie voran oder ähm, gibt es dann Wandel? Aber ich habe jetzt gehört, die ersten Umfragen ähm, sind ja... I've actually heard ja, that the results of the first poll show that power won't change hands and everything will stay the same. And of course, we still have the parliamentary elections. The big question is, who will be running and who will be Chancellor during the next office term? As of yet, we don't know. And who else is running for the election? So the people running are yet to be confirmed, but there is one thing we know, which is that Angela Merkel, who's been Chancellor for 16 years now, isn't going to be putting her name into the ring. Mm. Uh, Germany's Conservatives, uh, which is the CDU and the CSU, are expected to decide on their official candidate in late May. And it looks at the moment like it'll be either Armin Laschet or Marcus Söder. So Armin Laschet, you may have heard of, um, He's kind of well known because he really defended Mrs. Merkel's stance during the 2015 refugee crisis. And he also has kind of very strong ties with um, immigrant communities. Then you've also got a few more candidates running. So the candidate for the Social Democrat Party has been decided. It's Germany's current Minister of Finance, Olaf Scholz. Um, and then you've also got the Green Party, which is actually currently second in the polls. So it's a very important party in Germany. And they kind of need to decide between their two co-leaders as to who will run for Chancellor. Okay. And in terms of Angela Merkel, she's said that she's not going to be running. But what legacy is she going to be leaving for Germany? Well, this is something that really divides opinion. Um, some people think that she's done a really good job. She's um, dealt with crises extremely well. She's also very measured and has remained true to her morals. Mm-hmm. But then other people would argue that she's been a bit indecisive. Um, she's a bit of a populist and also responsible for a lot of the divisions that have um, emerged in Europe recently. Mm. However, her legacy is very likely to be overshadowed by Germany's performance on the vaccine front. So as of today, we're recording this on the 6th of March, one in 20 Germans have received the jab, compared to nearly a third of British people and a sixth of Americans. And initially there was a frustration because of the EU's vaccine strategy, but now that criticism appears to have shifted to the German authorities because they seem to be having a lot of problems administering all of the shots that they have. But anyway, I asked Theresa to talk a little bit about the legacy that people think Angela Merkel will leave. Yeah, also, es war nicht sehr überraschend, dass Frau Merkel nicht mehr antritt. Also, sie war jetzt fast so lange an der Regierung wie ähm, Bundeskanzler Kohl, ähm, also 16 Jahre lang. Ich selbst. 
It wasn't that surprising that Mrs Merkel didn't enter the race. She's been Chancellor of the government for almost as long as Helmut Kohl was, so 16 years. Personally, I haven't really known another female Chancellor, and I know lots of other people would say the same as me. My generation grew up with Mrs Merkel, and her decisions influenced our daily life. From young people's perspectives, this is a very positive thing, because Germany is a very rich country, and the economy is doing very well. Frau Merkel einfach sehr viele Krisen überwunden hat. Also 2008 zum Beispiel die Bankenkrise oder die Eurokrise 2010. Und womit sie sehr viel Sympathie gewonnen hat, das war dann 2015 die Flüchtlingskrise. Mrs. Merkel has overcome lots of crises, like, for example, the 2008 bank crisis and the 2010 euro crisis. Her position during the 2015 refugee crisis also won her a great deal of support. This was when she announced that Germany would be able to support the refugees who fled to Germany for help. This is, however, something that, six years later, she is being scrutinised for, because it has created unforeseen problems. And the coronavirus pandemic is another challenge that she is having to face during her last office term. But I would say that, at the end of the day, she has done a very good job. Some critics say that she wasn't faithful to her own viewpoints enough, that she was too often guided by the general mood and less by her own political stance. But that is only one way of looking at it. I'm nevertheless very excited to see who the next Chancellor will be. this episode talking about these made-up artists. So Alex, take the floor. What's all this about? Okay, so first of all, I want to transport us back to times when we could visit art galleries. Imagine you're at an art gallery, it's called Mr Pink in Valencia, and we're waiting for the arrival of two artists called Dorothea Von Toto and Todd Hunter, and as well an art curator called Pigui Hellman. And then the owner of this gallery gets three texts, each from, from all the people, saying that none of them can come and they've all got different reasons. And she just thinks, hmm, what a strange coincidence that none of them can come. But anyway, we enjoy the exhibition because <laughs> we like looking at the art. You know, we're having a nice evening anyway. But it's a bit of a mystery when we don't really know who these artists are and we don't know why they didn't appear. Well, five years on, it's been revealed that these three people were not real. They didn't exist. And they were all the creations of a Spanish artist called Javier Velasco. Okay, so how successful have these fake artists been? They had been pretty successful in the, you know, in the scale of things. Their art had been well received. A lot of it had been bought by the public. Some people have said that the low price of it helped with that. Um, but they'd exhibited in, in some really well-known exhibition spaces in Spain and they had thousands of followers on Instagram and social media. So yeah, they'd, they'd done really well and they, they weren't even real people. Javier Velasco supposedly created them to sort of critique the artistic community. Okay, I'm with you. Who is this guy, Javier Velasco? He's quite a famous artist in Spain. He's um, appeared several times at something called Arco Madrid, which is an international contemporary art fair. It's pretty big. Um, he's even had work bought by the former king of Spain, Juan Carlos. Oh, wow. Okay, so he's very, a very big name in like the art sphere. 
Mm-hmm. Um, why did he reveal all this now? So according to him, he said that he felt like now was the right time with when we're in a world where so much fake news exists. He felt mm-hmm. like he needed to reveal the true identity of these artists and also sort of use it as a reminder to people that at the moment reality and fake news coexist in the same space and you've you know you've got to really take it upon yourself to work out who's telling the truth and who isn't do you think also he wanted to reveal it now because we're in the midst of a pandemic and the kind of operations of the arts sphere have been put on pause and so people have kind of been reflecting on what's the point of all these really elitist art fairs art shows and you know maybe he's wanting to draw people's attention to all of this at the moment yeah i definitely think there's an element of that i think um creating fake characters to release art under it's obviously it's been done before in the past if even if you think about women who used to write books under men's names and i think he's trying to prove that it shouldn't really matter who you are yeah what does he plan to do now then well he says even though he's revealed this secret he's not going to be doing away with the characters because he actually says he they started out as an idea and he thought they would come to their natural end but they've amazingly sort of created their own world he says so he says when he becomes one of the characters he's got different ideas and you know different goals so he says they can't just get rid of the characters that easily that they're going to live with him for a long time and he'll still use them oh wow fair enough well yeah. i mean i can't yeah. relate <laughs> yeah i wish i had the ability to you know, transport yourself creatively into another character. It would just be amazing. And that brings us to the end of our fourth episode of Your Update. Tune in next time to hear the latest headlines from across the continent. And in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Your Update and on Instagram at Your Update Pod. And we welcome any feedback you'd like to share with us. Ciao for now. Should we say it together? Yeah, yeah. Ciao Ciao for now. now.